Hashtag CPC23 is the hashtag for the event. And just behind it, we can see some rather fetching merchandise. What is on sale for the Tory faithful today? Well, let's have a little look. Uh, it is a bag with Margaret Thatcher's face on it, an apron with Margaret Thatcher's face on it. <laughs> it's Tory party conference. Um, Ash, are you um, upset that we're both not there? I thought you were going to say it's Navarra Live and I've got an old bag of my own. Here's my co-host, <laughs> Ash Sarka, but you're too nice for that kind of thing. I'm not quick enough for that kind of thing. That was very good. I, I, I wish I'd said that. Um, coming up later tonight, Liz Truss seems like she won't go away anytime soon. We'll discuss her rally um, that took place today. Lots of excitement about it, apparently. Um, Tories are falling over themselves to lavish praise on GB News. Quite notable um, that that has been going on at conference. And Ed Balls has revealed an anecdote that exposes the cosy relationship between government and media. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. Rishi Sunak appears to have decided that the big message from his party conference in Manchester will be this. There shall be no high-speed rail going to Manchester. Downing Street reportedly does not deny that the Prime Minister is planning to axe HS2 at Tory conference. Sunak is due to have an emergency cabinet meeting tomorrow to finalise the plans. So we'll have more details then. Um, Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham is at Tory conference. Here was his reaction. People are meeting in rooms, yards from where we're standing now about decisions that will affect the future of the north of England for the rest of the century. But nobody in government deems that they should pick up the phone to the leader of Manchester City Council or to myself. And quite frankly, for the city that's hosting this conference, and we're pleased to do that, I don't think that is really any way to treat people. End this shambles. You can't take decisions of this magnitude in the way that you're doing. Andy Street also wasn't happy. The West Midlands mayor has this to say. Gripping this situation means re-examining it. It does not mean giving up, admitting defeat, you could say, or even, you could say, cancelling the future. My arguments have not changed around HS2. They're all about connectivity, about capacity on the West Coast mainline. And of course, it remains just as right now as it was 10 years ago to get a high-speed rail link all the way from London to Manchester. But it has become about a lot more than just a railway. This has become a debate about Britain's ability to do the tough stuff successfully, as previous generations of Britons certainly did. And of course now it's become a debate about Britain's credibility as a place to invest. Ash, I want your take on this. It seems like a strange announcement to make at a conference in Manchester. You, you're in the city, your message to the people, oh, that train line that was going to go from London to Manchester via Birmingham, not anymore, not coming here. I don't think that the people of Manchester is really the intended audience for this Conservative Party announcement. What they're trying to do, I think, is two things. First is they're trying to shore up the Tory party faithful in the shires who really hate HS2 because, as you said last week, Michael, they really prefer fields to functional, you know, public infrastructure. And then on the other hand, what you've got is an attempt to, I think, do something of like a gilet jaune style strategy by saying, oh, you know, Labour, the greenies, the climate woke eco mob, they're trying to declare war on the motorist. So these are the two halves of that strategy. So wanging on about 15 minute cities and LTNs, and the ULEs on one hand, and on the other hand, scrapping such 
an important piece of public infrastructure because of the fact it's turned out to be a lot more expensive. And I think that's because of reasons what you've discussed. You've got a massive reliance on consultants and outsourcing. And two, you've also got this inflated cost that comes from having lots of tunneling rather than just like straight railway lines over those aforementioned fields. Um, and that's appealing to people who who don't really, you know, rely on public transport, like the idea of totally unspoiled uh, greenery and, um, you know, can can afford to, to lose something like high-speed rail. But I think that what Andy Street was hinting at, which is this really does um, say something quite damning about us as a country, our ability to do things, um, whether or not we're, we're a safe haven for investment if we're just willing to, you know, throw away millions and millions of pounds over an aborted high-speed rail project. Um, this really isn't a ringing endorsement for the successive conservative governments who were responsible for building HS2. Yeah, obviously it also gives Labour a decision to make. Um, if they want, they could reverse this decision quite easily. They'll probably be in power in a year's time. Um, I imagine maybe one of the reasons Rishi Sunak is doing this is because it, it puts Labour in a bit of a, a corner They've said that they won't, you know, essentially invest any money that the Tories aren't already investing. Um, and so if they do want to, you know, reverse Rishi Sunak's decision on HS2, they'll have to explain where the money's going to come from without increasing taxes on the rich, which they've already ruled out, and without borrowing much money, which they've already ruled out. So, I mean, politically interesting for the rest of us, very depressing, because I, I think it would be nice if we could have trains of a standard that they have in China and France and Spain. Um, let's go on to today's main event, which was the speech from Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. He's not too popular among the Tory faithful. Under his stewardship, overall taxes are the highest they've been in 70 years. So Hunt was on the hunt for scapegoats. Even when companies are struggling to find workers, around 100,000 people are leaving the labour market every year for a life on benefits. Mel Stride gets this 100% which is why he's replacing the work capability assessment. And we're gonna look at the way the sanctions regime works. It isn't fair that someone who refuses to look seriously for a job gets the same as someone trying their best. Now, Labour have pledged to end sanctions. Have they learned nothing? When they left office, we had more children in workless households than nearly anywhere in Europe. Since then, those households are down by a million. And conference, we are never, ever going back. Who'd have guessed it? The Tories are behind in the polls. The economy is a mess. So it's time to blame people on benefits. On Radio 4's Today programme, Hunt went into a little more detail on his plans for work capability assessment reform. You made clear that you want some of those tens of thousands of people who are on benefits to go back to work. The key to this is something called the work capability assessment. You're going to change that as I understand it. Is it the case that in future, people who say they've got mobility problems, people who say they find it difficult to engage socially, people who say they've got bowel or bladder control problems, that will not be enough for them to claim benefits without needing to seek to work. They will have to look for work. Well, Mel Stride is looking at all these details. Um, and when we... Uh, when we do the autumn statement, we'll explain exactly what we're going to do. But if I were to give you a sense of the direction of travel, what we want to do is to say, 
those people who have those medical conditions, rather than automatically signing them off work and saying you don't have to look for work and potentially um, parking them in a way that is not good for them either. If you've got a mental health condition, actually social interaction that you would get in a workplace is very important. What we want to do is to say, could we help them better by giving them treatment first, by actually solving the medical condition so that they can remain engaged in the workplace? Now, in a context of businesses desperately looking for people, uh, that is one of the most helpful things we could do for our economic growth. That's Jeremy Hunt saying this is just about helping people. It's just about helping people. Got nothing to do with scapegoating people and trying to, you know, throw some red meat to their Tory base. Um, of course, I mean, Hunt is right. There has been a recent increase in people claiming out-of-work benefits. In September, the number of people in the UK with long-term sickness hit a record 2.6 million. According to the ONS, the largest category of illness contributing to keeping people out of work is depression and anxiety, with over 1.3 million people affected. That's up from just under 1 million in 2019. Another large category is problems with legs or feet, which have gone up from just over 800,000 to just under 1.1 million. More people are also having back or neck problems. They're affecting a million people out of work, up from 800,000 in 2019. Of course, many people might be suffering from more than one of these conditions listed at the same time. So it's not the case that there are 800,000 people who are off work or a million people off work purely because of, of back or neck pain. If you see what I'm saying, it could be a combination of the various things listed there. Um, of course, this all begs the question, why are more people falling ill? Well, this graphic from Sky is based on ONS data, and it shows that long-term illness was steadily falling until the pandemic. Since then, it's been climbing pretty dramatically. The ONS reports two key factors affecting economic inactivity due to illness. The first is changing demographics, with the ONS reporting this. An important contribution to long-term sickness volumes has come from the large number of baby boomers, that's those born between 1946 and 1964, approaching retirement. Between 2019 and 2022, it is estimated that around 40,000 extra people would be expected to become inactive because of long-term sickness as a result of the changing age composition of the population. But the actual change over the same period was much larger, at 462,000. It is likely that this changing age composition will continue to apply an upward pressure to inactivity volumes in the next few years. That's a pretty stark statistic. The number of baby boomers out of work with long-term illness is now 11 times greater than it was expected to be before the pandemic. Another reason for illness impacting work at greater levels than ever before is NHS waiting lists, an effect of the pandemic again, but also of Tory mismanagement. The ONS reports this. 33% of those inactive, excluding the retired, were waiting, well that is excluding retired, were waiting for NHS treatment. Of those inactive, excluding retired, and waiting for NHS treatment, 42% said it had strongly impacted their lives, with 72% saying their well-being was affected, and almost 50% saying their mobility was affected. For those employed and waiting for NHS treatment, 67% said that it had strongly impacted their lives, with 37% saying their work was affected. Of these, 9% said this has caused them to go on long-term sick leave. So the reasons for increased levels of long-term sickness appear to be a pandemic, an aging population, and a neglected NHS. Now, I'm not sure more assessments will make those crises go away, but torturing the sick has been a popular Tory pastime since the Cameron years, when work capability assessments were used to force people with illnesses and disabilities off of income support and incapacity benefits. benefit. And that legacy is still being felt. Take the example of Eugenia 
Kuchina, who lost both her legs as a child in 2018. A work capability assessment found her fit to work. She described her experience to Channel 4 News. I went to the job centre and the people couldn't believe that I actually came there with the letter looking for a job. When I said, we haven't got company fit enough to employ you. So they couldn't believe that you'd been sent to the job yeah. centre? With Universal Credit, I went, I went to speak to them and I said, don't apply for universal, universal Credit because we can't, we can't do much about your situation. And they, asked, they told me, literally there and then, to um, go to court. I found it very hard because at the time, from the 28th of December to 27th of February, I literally didn't receive nothing. Uh, of my benefits money whatsoever when that's when I had to rely on the food bank and that's why it was hard to actually leave because I wanted to look after my son but I couldn't. I didn't have enough food to look after both of us. You don't want to ask for help. You're quite independent person and then you have to kind of lower yourself. You just like shut yourself, shut the doors and everything, turn your phone off and just like leave me alone. I've had enough of this. Sometimes it feels like it's a, some kind of cleansing system. Somebody's trying to get rid of you just because you're not good enough, because you've got a disability. And it's, that's a genuine feeling because if, if you haven't got any friends or families, you will lock yourself in. And eventually, because you haven't got food or, or any money, boy, it'll be the end of you. And I think this is what's so worrying, I suppose, about what Jeremy Hunt is saying now, because the Tories, they'll always say, you know, back in 2010, they said the same thing, right? That what these, you know, stricter assessments will do is they'll put people back into work. That will be of benefit to society because there'll be less people, you know, it won't be a drain on the taxpayers' money. And it'll also be a benefit to the people themselves because it's good for people to go out and get a job that's better for their mental health. Um, it might even be better for their physical health if it means they get more exercise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, fine, in theory, the reality, though, is when you do this via sanctions, via increased strict assessments, instead of providing people support, what you actually do is you put people who are already in a difficult situation in a completely you know, tragic, impossible one, right? If, you, if you've got someone who's already got considerable disabilities, who is then essentially bullied back into work, right? You, you've seen some of the disastrous consequences there in that interview. And then the Tories have the sort of added insult, I think, to say this is for your own good, which is essentially what Jeremy Hunt was saying there. Um, of course, a big part of, of this pitch, you've got these uh, increased assessments, apparently, then increased benefit sanctions as well. On Good Morning Britain, Susanna Reid tackled him about those plans. You're simply re-announcing a policy that is already in place because you think it's a crowd pleaser. And people will fall for it thinking it's a fantastic new policy. You're cracking down on those not looking for work. You already sanction people who are not looking for work. You already suspend their benefits. 541,000 claimants were sanctioned in the year up until the beginning of this year, with 530,000 of those penalised for failing to keep appointments. Uh, but Susanna, if you're saying this is just re-announcing something, that is just wrong. Uh, let me say that uh, plain and simple. Uh, we do, you're absolutely right, have the legal framework to uh, impose those sanctions. The question is whether that actually happens. And at the moment, as I said to you in my earlier answer, 
on the whole, sanctions are only imposed in when people don't comply with the process, um, mainly turning up to a job centre when they're asked to. We want to look at whether we can improve the way that works. And by the way, it's not just sanctions. We're also doing something else which is new, which is raising the national living wage to more than £11 an hour so that people who do the right thing get rewarded for it. The combination of sanctions and improvements in the national living wage are one of the reasons why unemployment has fallen by more than a million since 2010. Okay. But we still have a million vacancies. We still have 100,000 people every year who are being signed off having to look for work. And we need to address that because uh, we want to grow the economy. We want to be able to fund the NHS yeah. and our schools and our important public services. This is how we do that. I think one of the things that's been sort of most gross about the interviews given by Jeremy Hunt today and then his speech to Tory party conference is, is basically, I mean, I mean, the political strategy behind it is very clear. He's saying, I'm going to be increasing the national living wage or the minimum wage to £11, which, by the way, is just what was recommended by the living wage sort of body. You know, they always accept it. So it's, it's not actually a decision he's made. But he's saying, I'm going to increase the, 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 the minimum wage to £11. And at the same time, I'm going to be punishing people who are on disability benefits. So this is sort of like, we will reward those who work and punish those who don't. Ash, this is, I mean, it's essentially exactly the same as everything we heard sort of in the early 2010s, isn't it? It really does feel like we're, we're back in the bad old days. I think in terms of reproducing those myths that there is this huge underclass of lifestyle unemployed who are sponging off the state, claiming benefits, not looking for work, all of that stuff which has been widely discredited during the austerity years, every study that's been done has shown that there is a minuscule amount of people who wrongly claim benefits that they are not entitled to. There is a minuscule amount of people who could work but choose not to work. There is a huge population of people who, because of the kinds of economic policies pursued by the Conservative Party are unable to work due to reasons of long-term sickness. And so this is the thing which is slightly different from where we were in 2010, which is what Jeremy Hunt is talking about, which is that you've got all these people exiting the labour market and, you know, signing on to be long-term sick, uh, you know, needing to claim benefits, is that those are people who have been forced out of the labour market due to conservative policies. So on the one hand, what you've got are the policies of austerity and what that's done in terms of the picture of national health. Now, this isn't just Navarra Media, a bunch of lefties saying this. This is something which has been found by the Marmot Report, which that austerity has had an actively detrimental impact on people's health. Uh, what you do when you force people into poverty is that obviously their overall health declines. People are able to afford, you know, poor, only poorer quality food, levels of stress goes up, quality of housing goes down. Access to healthcare, uh, you know, goes into decline. Um, people are forced into bits of the labour market which are potentially more dangerous, less well regulated. Forms of sickness associated with, with that go up, and the amount of support that's available to people, enablement support, stuff which is important for people with long-term illnesses, disabilities, chronic illnesses, all of that is being taken away as well. What that means is you've got an overall picture of declining health. In the poorer parts of this country, that means that progress in terms of life expectancy has stalled. You have got a 20-year gap 
in average life expectancy between the most deprived parts of this country and the richer parts of this country. And that is something which has absolutely been worsened by austerity. Um, so you've got this, you know, um, this issue of people leaving the labour market because of long-term sickness. It's created by Conservative Party policy. The other part of this picture is that I think you've got this twofold um, you know, almost like this pincer element of an aging population. Because on the one hand, what you have is people exiting the labour market early and having to claim benefits because of sickness. People get older. The availability of enablement care, of NHS care is really, really bad. That's also something which got worse because of the pandemic. Elective care was um, was something which was massively interrupted by lockdowns. It's still something which is interrupted because of huge staffing shortages in the NHS. And the other part is that you've got, you know, a baby boomer generation, some of whom got very, very rich because of the economic policies of 40 years of neoliberalism, rising house prices, who can afford to exit the labour market. Now, these aren't the people that Jeremy Hunt is talking about. Um, you know, certainly they don't need to claim benefits in the same way. But when you've got one in five baby boomers, you know, that they're, they're a millionaire, <laughs> you know, literally a millionaire, uh, own multiple properties. Um, that's also responsible for people exiting the labour market. Again, that's a creation of Tory party policy, which is you create this hugely unequal uh phenomenon of, of, you know, generational hoarding of wealth because of house prices. And then you're sort of surprised when people don't want to work because they're rich enough to stop. Um, so this is absolutely a, a, a Tory made issue. And the way in which blame is piled on people for the crime of being sick is disgusting. I would hope, I would hope that maybe this doesn't land the same way that it did in 2010. Because when David Cameron came into power, that narrative of scrounging, scummy benefits claimants, it was being held up by this like pop culture scaffolding. So you had Little Britain, you know, Vicky Pollard, you had Shameless, you had Benefit Street, you had, you know, there's so many like indie songs I remember listening to, which like railed against chavs and like, you know, these scummy people in Burberry caps. There was this whole moral panic around this idea of people claiming benefits. And I think that became like a real middle-class bugbear. I'm not sure if that's the that's the same now. So sure, Jeremy Hunt's trying to replay the greatest hits of 2010, but are people going to head to the dance floor? I don't know. Next story. Rishi Sunak sat down with Laura Koonsberg this weekend and the interview had two standout moments. One of them concerned Rishi Sunak's fight against what he calls the war on motoring. Rishi Sunak sat down for a set-piece interview with Laura Koonsberg this weekend and the interview had two standout moments. One of them concerned, Rishi Sunak's fight against what he calls the war on motorists. Um, now that fight includes the suggestion that Sunak would block new 20 mile per hour zones in, in neighbourhoods. Koonsberg inquired what that would mean in practice. I want to be really clear about what you're actually proposing. Will you stop councils, whether they're Conservative, Labour or any colour of the rainbow, Will you stop them introducing 20 mile an hour zones as a default? Because that's really what's at stake here. You can complain about it, as lots of our viewers might do, but are you going to stop it happening? Because if you don't, then it's just rhetoric, isn't it? No, no, what this is about is making sure that the statutory guidance that goes to local councils from government is clear 
about making sure that councils, which are obviously in charge of what's happening in their local areas, are doing things with the support and consent of their local communities. Rishi Sunak, his big pitch was, I'm going to stop the war on motorists, which I think he's kind of made up, to be honest. But his big pitch was, I'm going to block, I'm going to stand in the way of 20 mile hour um, speed limit zones, right? Always a bad policy, you know, low speed limits do encourage cycling on the roads. They are much safer for kids crossing the roads. I personally think we should have, you know, roads being you know, much more public space than they are. I think it'd be good if parents could relax when their kids go out to play instead of worrying that they're going to get run down by a car, right? So 20 mile hour per zone's very, very good. But his pitch was he would block it to save the driver. Now he's admitted we can't even block it. It is up to local councils. So what was it? That was, that was literally just a press release. Like, you're the prime minister. If you're a leader of the opposition, if you're a campaigner, you can do press releases and make a big deal out of them. If you're the prime minister, your big pitch to the electorate shouldn't be messaging, right? You, you need to have something behind it. Let's look at the other memorable moment from that interview. You mentioned there you feel you've got a good sense of what the, where the public's at. Let's look at what the public associates with you and we asked them. Now, we did this with Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader. We'll do it again with Keir Starmer. We're using what's called a word cloud, asking people what they associate a leader with. And we can show our viewers that with this morning. Now, you can see there, rightly or wrongly, what many people associate with you is your personal wealth. What does that make you think does that worry you if people might feel you're out of touch? Or, or perhaps, you know, you are very wealthy. You could be living on a beach, not working at all. You know, a lot of people might think, well, you've got all this wealth. You could do anything good on you for being in public service. But what goes through your mind when you see that? Look, my job is to deliver for people. And that's why we've just been talking a lot about this net zero decision, but which I've made. On. I think people would say, really like to know what your response is. Not We've talked about the net zero target no, but this a lot. Is, but this is a great example of it. You know, that is a decision which was motivated by me wanting to ease the burden on families. Uh, so on your, your view on this, in those early years of Cameron Osborne, there was a real attempt, I think, by sort of the Labour Party and the Mirror and sort of people on the left, essentially, to say these are posh boys running Britain in their own interests. And it didn't really seemed to catch on very much. People didn't seem to mind that much that these were all people who went to Eton or wherever. With Rishi Sunak, for some reason, his wealth does seem to have, you know, stuck in people's craw a little bit more. They do think of him as a, as a very rich guy. And that's the first thing that comes to mind when they're asked about him. I mean, why has, you know, Rishi Rich stuck a bit better than, than talking about David Cameron as, as Eton posh boy? I think there's a couple of reasons why. I mean, if you cast your mind back to the early years of David Cameron's leadership of the Conservative Party, you really tried to rebrand as middle class. Now, there was a massive PR blitz around this. He didn't want to be known as Mr. Bullingdon Club, Mr. Eaton. He tried to brand himself as a Bowden dad. Now, I didn't know what Bowden was until this, you know, period in British politics. It's a posh catalogue, all right? It's like little words for the Ocado set. And it was kind of effective. Um, and he was sort of able to do this, like, um, you know, posho in, in, in middle-class clothing act because he was able to, I think, tap into something which was aspirational about middle-class people. It was saying, you know, you, you're a bit posh, but you could be a little bit posher, but I'm not crazy out of touch. You know, I'm not a brand of paint you've never heard of. I'm Farrow and Ball. You, know, you can get it in being cute, but it's a little bit posher than your than your average paint. I think Rishi Sunak 
uh, both from from that sense of you know here's a real PR project to show you who I am. He doesn't really have that anymore. He did have that when he was this anti-Johnson figure, right? When he was sort of seen as perhaps a, a, you know, sensible alternative. He was the chancellor of the exchequer. He was building up a kind of, you know, different pole of attraction. But I think because the conservatives have, have royally fucked it. And also I think that the composition of his team has changed. He's much less able to pull that off. Now he's the one that's carrying the can. I think that when it comes to his political positioning, he's a far less talented politician than David Cameron. Now that's not saying much. David Cameron famously was, you know, slammed by Barack Obama for being a lightweight. But Rishi Sunak, he's Cameron without the focus groups, right? There's Nothing below the surface, but there's almost nothing on the surface either. Let's go straight on to our next story. If I were Liz Truss, so Britain's shortest serving prime minister, I'd want to put my feet up and stay well away from the public view. There are other things to do in life. However, it's being reported that Truss may consider another crack at the top job. Kitty Donaldson is the UK political editor for Bloomberg, and she tweeted this. Exclusive! While many in the Conservative Party had assumed Liz Truss simply wants to remain influential following her chaotic stint as Prime Minister, her ambitions are rather higher. She's thinking of running again to lead. Now, that story seems to be based on three sources who said she could run. Um, So it's not necessarily the case that she's about to launch a leadership bid. But whatever the reality is, Truss has been making an impact at Tory conference with a very well-attended speech. She was there to play the Thatcherite classics, mostly, and began by talking about business. We need to unleash business across Britain. We need people to want to invest in our country. We need businesses to be able to expand, to grow to create new jobs, to create new ideas. That's why I'm calling upon the Chancellor at the autumn statement to put corporation tax back down to 19%. And frankly, if we can get it lower, the better. Because what we know is we know that when businesses are able to keep more of those funds, the future comes from. It's where the opportunities come from. It's where the jobs come from. And what we know is that at the moment, we're seeing businesses not locate in the United Kingdom. We saw AstraZeneca choose to locate elsewhere. We've seen small companies struggling with the level of tax and regulation. We've seen a flight out of Britain of high net worth individuals, third only to India and China, and in fact, ahead of Russia. Right now, corporation tax stands at 25%. A cut to 19% would take us back to last year's level. But it's unclear that that would make us more competitive than other major economies. Now, according to the OECD, Britain still has the lowest rate of corporation tax in the G7. And while it's true that AstraZeneca decided to build a factory in the Republic of Ireland rather than the UK, the rate of corporation tax there is just 12.5%, so one of the lowest in Europe. That means a return to 19% wouldn't necessarily have changed their minds. So should we be competing with small tax havens like Ireland or major economies like the rest of the G7? Well, Truss knows what she thinks. It doesn't seem like the correct answer to me. 
Truss also talked about cutting gas bills, recommending more North Sea exploration, and also fracking. It wasn't all repackaged factorism, though. She also had a message on housing. The fact is we haven't built enough homes. And it's incredibly difficult if you're a young person to get on the property ladder. It's incredibly difficult to even rent a property in big cities like Manchester and London. It's just far too expensive. And whilst lots of members of parliament talk about building more homes, it's very difficult to actually get them to vote for reducing the regulation that's stopping the homes being built. It's all about protecting newts or installing a bat bridge. That appears to be the priority rather than building homes. So I think we need to turbocharge the incentives. We need to incentivize local areas to build more homes through giving them tax breaks if they're prepared to get rid of that red tape. And I think we need to do it at a level so we are building 500,000 new homes every year. Now, I actually agree with Liz Truss there in part. I would love Britain to be building 500,000 new homes a year. I think we need shed loads more homes. I also like that kind of ambition, right? Sweden um, built a, a, a million homes in, um, I think, a decade. And that's a very, very small country. So that was very, very ambitious. Relevant here, though, Sweden did it with social housing. And if you look at the history of Britain, we had mass house building in this country when we also had social housing. So in the 50s and 60s, we'd often have 300 to 400,000 houses built a year, a rate we haven't reached in about 30 to 40 years, right? And that was because half of it was done by the private sector, and then half of it was done by the state. So 200,000 social homes built a year in in certain periods of the 50s and 60s, right? Um, that's the kind of thing that Liz Truss won't talk about. If you just slash regulations, then what that's going to mean is probably quite a lot of low quality housing that all looks the same in the suburbs. If what you want is high quality housing that people want to live in, you do need some involvement from the state. Now, I'm not necessarily totally against planning reform. I do think that we need to reduce the power of of NIMBYs in the home counties. Um, but I, I think if unless someone is talking about social housing as part of that mix and the state getting really heavily involved as part of that mix, I don't think they're serious. Of course, much like Fashion Week, the story here isn't only about what happened on stage, but also who was in the front row of the audience. And when it came to Liz Truss's speech, that included Nigel Farage. He posted this to his Twitter. This is the Great British Growth Rally, starring Liz Truss. They will not get everybody into the room. There is a genuine buzz here. Uh, and these, of course, are Tory party members. They voted for her to become leader of the party and prime minister. And they weren't asked, of course, when she was removed. But even more importantly, it's the message. It's about helping small business, reducing taxes, and actually getting growth, which is the only way we get out of this mess. I've got to tell you, this is more exciting than anything happening in the conference hall. Also in the front row for Truss's speech was former Home Secretary Priti Patel. And Patel hasn't ruled out a bid to be the Tories' next leader. And this weekend on Sky, she took a swipe at Suella Braverman. Suella Braverman said in Washington last week that multiculturalism had failed. In what way was that helpful to Rishi Sunak? Well, I think you'll have to ask her and ask Rishi Sunak, to be honest. I mean, she's given a speech and... I think, actually, I did hear um, what your political um, reporter said earlier on, Sam Coates. To me, this is very much, you know, making interventions, statements. But actually, Trevor, I think we have to be realistic here that those are no sub that's not, not a substitute for delivery around 
you know, changes to policy in government. Oh. Now, I don't know what the intention was around that. It might just be to get attention, to have the dividing lines that, you know, your previous commentators were mentioning as we go into a run-up to a general election. Now, I can understand that. I can absolutely understand that. But you and I sitting here today, okay, we are the products of actual integration, multiculturalism, dynamic communities, people that love our country, want to contribute to our country, along with a hell of a lot of other people that have done exactly the same. And I think that's something we should be proud of in our country. Probably the first sensible thing I've ever heard Priti Patel saying. Um, it, it takes someone as sort of right-wing and vicious as Suella Braverman to make Priti Patel sound reasonable. And of course, Braverman is one of a number of current cabinet ministers thought to be angling for the top job if and when the Tories lose the next election. But she and Patel could face stiff competition. Bloomberg write this, many Tories are working behind the scenes for a leadership run if the election goes badly, according to interviews with more than two dozen conservative lawmakers, advisors and donors. There are at least 13 would-be contenders to watch out for, said the people who spoke to Bloomberg on condition of anonymity. One member of parliament said the subplot of Tory conference told in unsubtle speeches, fringe events and drinks at hotel bars was the battle for the future of the party. Another told Bloomberg that Sunak was already a lame duck. So lots of Tories are angling for position, but the person with the biggest spring in his step at Conservative Party conference isn't even a Tory. So you're here for the first time in since perhaps 1987, 1988. Yeah. My first question is, have you had to rejoin the Conservative Party? Now, no. Would you like to share it with TV I, News viewers and listeners? I think that my presence here highlights the divisions within the party. Right. And the battle that will happen, I suspect, after the next general election. I went to the CDO dinner last the night. Conservative Democratic Organisation. And these are, a, these are rebellious, rebellious group of Tories who feel the party's become unconservative, undemocratic. They're not really getting the choice to choose their own MPs as candidates, things like that. Um, and, you know, I see what they're saying. I see what Suella Breverman's saying. And I do see, in some parts of the Conservative party, things that I've campaigned on for 10 or 15 years, now becoming mainstream. Mainstream in a wing of the party, but not in the party as a whole. And, and frankly, I mean, let, 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 let's face it, after 13 years, this is not a conservative party, it's a social democrat party. It's high tax, big state, high spend, open door immigration on the most extraordinary historic scale. Um, and if they're not going to rediscover some sense of being a national party that believes in its people, they'll be out of office for 10 or 15 years. And uh, it's interesting, at the Conservative dinner last night you were at, you were referred to by Dame Priti Patel, who was making, if ever I've heard, a leadership campaign speech, yeah. uh, and even though there's no vacancy currently, you stood up. The applause for you was deafening. The Tory party faithful still see you as their lost leader. They do. Um, it's a really funny one. I mean, I, Andrew, I never shifted. My political opinions never went right or left. I didn't change from 1990. It's the party that's changed radically over these last three decades. Now, of course, I disagree with Nigel Farage that the Conservatives are now some sort of social democratic party in favour of open borders. They obviously have pretty vicious and border policy, especially when it comes to asylum seekers, and they're certainly not socially democratic. But Ash, he does seem to be right that when it comes to the grassroots and the future direction of the party, it has moved much closer to, to him over the past 30 years. Absolutely. And look, this is the thing that Nigel Farage was able to understand and to capitalise on, which is after the financial crisis, this idea of having an effectively neoliberal party, a very Thatcherite party, was 
going to have a time limit on it. Now, it wasn't a time limit that expressed itself at the 2010 election, but in the 2015 election, David Cameron was forced into putting an in-out referendum on the Conservative Party manifesto in order to assuage his rowdier backbenchers. Cast your mind back to the 90s and the 2000s, leaving the EU was a really, really marginal position, right? It wasn't something which most people, you know, really backed or believed on. But when this idea of leaving the EU became a vehicle, a holder for all sorts of dissatisfaction with the status quo, that was something that could really, really pick up steam. And that's something that Nigel Farage understood. That's something that Dominic Cummings understood. And it's something which made the Conservative Party, the party of the establishment, the party of capital, able to reinvent itself as a party of insurgency. And so I think when you're at this point in time, where what you've had is a kind of restoration of, you know, Cameroonism, right? Even though Rishi Sunak was a Brexiteer, you've got Jeremy Hunt installed as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, you've got real anxiety about the size of the national debt. You've got real anxieties about levels of taxation that's putting you a lot more towards David Cameron than you are with some of the more redistributive instincts of Boris Johnson. You've got a space opening up because that kind of managerial technocracy doesn't have a massive social base out in the electorate anymore. And that certainly doesn't have a massive social base amongst the Conservative Party grassroots. And if there's one thing that Nigel Farage is, he's a very adept reader of that mood. And in terms of what that means for those of us who are on the left, I think we've got to ask ourselves a question. And that question is, what are the right going to do next? Because I think there are a lot of people uh, who perhaps watch the show, who, you know, perhaps read The Guardian, who feel a little bit of a sense of relief that Keir Starmer is pretty likely to form the next government after the next general election. But as we've discussed, Michael, if that Labour government doesn't address some of those deep structural endemic issues within the economy. We're talking about runaway inequality, crumbling infrastructure, rising precarity amongst the workforce, a decline in the availability of housing. That sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo isn't going to go away. And you've got to ask yourself, how are the right going to capitalize on it? Because they're already strategizing it. Nigel Farage, you know, flashing a bit of ankle at the Conservative Party membership at Tory Party conference. That's just step one in his plan to capitalise on that dissatisfaction. So we've got to work out how and think about how our political strategies, how media strategies can offer some real answers, can tell the truth and not just sort of fall back into xenophobia, comforting nationalistic myths in order to, you know, appease people's need for meaning and purpose when the government is rudderless and the market has failed to deliver rising living standards. Let's go to our next story. Last week was tough for GB News but this week's turning out better for them. At a gala dinner for a Conservative Democratic Organisation, that's a, a right-wing faction in the Tory party, former Home Secretary Priti Patel said this. 
do also want to welcome some more friends here tonight. Our friends that are here, the newest, most successful, most dynamic, no-nonsense news station, and the defenders of free speech. That is my friends at GB News. Thank you for everything that you do. Just incredible. Honestly, just incredible. embarrassed. I know you're not shrinking, Violet. Thank you for absolutely everything you do, because, you know, this isn't breaking news, but I think it's fair to say that our country needed a new disruptor when it came to the broadcast media. To take on the establishment, the Tory-hating, Brexit-bashing, free-speech deniers at the BBC and the so-called mainstream media. Another MP to lavish praise on GB News was former Prime Minister Liz Truss. At a Tory fringe event, she addressed GB News business editor Liam Halligan and said this. Thank you very much, Liam. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for your work on GB News. Because in my view, we need more economics journalism and we need more GB News. Challenging the orthodoxy broadcasting common sense and transforming our media landscape. So long may it continue. So why are ambitious Tories being quite so effusive towards GB News, even after recent controversies? Well, they seem to think support from the station might be key to the leadership election that would follow a Tory defeat at the next general election. And they have good reason to. Not only is GB News popular among the Tory base, its owner, Paul Marshall, is planning a bid for The Telegraph newspaper. So if he owned GB News and The Telegraph, that would mean the outlets owned by the Brexit-backing hedge fund manager would have enormous reach among the Tory selectorate. Um, Ash, we've sort of very recently seen the, the resignation, the standing down of Rupert Murdoch. He was the kingmaker when it came to British politics, at least on the conservative side of the equation. Um, could Paul Marshall be the new Murdoch if he's owning The Telegraph and GB News, clearly there's a lot of ambitious Tories who want to be on his side. Potentially. I think the one thing that is for certain about GB News is that disproportionately people who watch it will be on the right politically. Many of them will be members of the Conservative Party. So if you want to make your pitch directly to the selectorate, also you want to be able to do so in a way where you're not going to be interviewed by the most hard-hitting journalists that the media industry have to offer. I mean, you might even be interviewed by a fellow Tory MP. GB News would be the place to go. And I think that this also indicates where the runners and riders think the centre of gravity is going to be within the Conservative Party. As I said before, it's not going to be amongst the kind of, you know, technocrats, uh, you know, I'm going to be doing, you know, my after dinner speech at JP Morgan. Uh, that's where power is. They think they're going to have to take a much more populist, right-wing, authoritarian, nationalistic bent in order to win over the selectorate of the Conservative Party membership. And also, I think, to re regain something of a political purpose with the orientation of the party. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be representing the financial interests of those massive banks and all those hedge funds, but it just means that their public-facing pitch is going to be something very, very different. Indeed, I think that 
we could be seeing something which is quite similar to, you know, the likes of Giorgia Maloney in Italy, defining your premiership by being tough on migration, tough on migration and tough on migration. It's something which is deeply regressive and unafraid, I think, of, of, you know, building quite draconian uses of state power to crack down on those who are deemed undesirable, whether those are, you know, sexual minorities or ethnic minorities. GB News has proved itself to be much less squeamish um, than, say, Sky News or the BBC when it comes to parroting that line. And, And the right consider it part of their political communications infrastructure. And I know that GB News is something we've been talking about a lot um, on Navarra Live, and I suppose this is the this is the key question, which is you know facing those of us who are part of left media, which is, do you interact with GB News like it's Sky News, or do you interact with GB News like it's part of right wing political communications infrastructure? And even if it is, and it gets very big, you know what what do you do with that? I think that it could it could play a role in warping the overall tenor of the media landscape, the way that the sun and the news of the world did in terms of newspapers. I think it certainly will. I don't think there's any disagreement on the front of, of whether that's the role it's playing. I think the difference is, is whether there's any point in engaging with it or whether it causes any damage to engage with it or, or, or whether it's helpful to speak to that audience as well. But I'm, I mean, I'm, I've got no no doubt in my mind that GB News is part of the infrastructure of the conservative right wing and that's what they're intending to use it for. Let's go to our next story. The new podcast hosted by George Osborne and Ed Ball shows the coziness of the centrist elite that spans Britain's main parties. And the most recent episode revealed the coziness of Britain's main parties with the press. Let me tell you, this is no time for a novice. I'm not sure if I've ever talked about this before, but actually that line... Um, I had been at a dinner the night before. So Gordon's conference speech had been written for weeks. There's a whole team in there, final rehearsals. And uh, I wasn't there. I'd gone for dinner with The Sun News. And I was sitting with Rebecca Wade, the editor of The Sun, about 10 people around the table. And she just said, you know, tell me what's going on. And I was talking about the challenge Gordon was facing, the financial crisis, all of these things. And she suddenly said, stop. Stop, she said. That's the line. And I said, what? Because I didn't actually know what I'd said. I was just talking. She said, that's the line. This is no time for a novice. She said, if Gordon Brown says that in his speech tomorrow, I promise you that'll be the headline in every newspaper. That's the line. And I thought, well, maybe she's right. And I was slightly embarrassed that I you know, hadn't quite realised I'd said it. So the next morning, 8am, I went into Gordon's hotel suite and they were all there rehearsing. And I said, I've got a line. And I was at dinner last night with The Sun and I think this will work. I said, this is no time for a novice. And Gordon said, that's the line. To quote Michael Hestein, you're telling us no time for a novice was not Brown's, it was Ball's. <laughs> well, and of course, Rebecca Brooks, once again, proving that she's been running the country, in fact, for the last 20 years. Well, what can I say? Um, dinner with the sun. I mean, of course, when you're at conference, you do spend a huge amount of time, particularly with the media. They all come down, the editors, the Rupert Murdoch party used to happen on the Tuesday night normally. So... There's always a lot of intrigue, but that's the first, um, the only time where um, I would say a, a, a newspaper editor kind of had that kind of um, influence. It was my line. She spotted it. And what I find very, I suppose, obnoxious about that clip is, you know, if you were Ed Balls 
and you were saying, look, I know it's terrible, but the reality of British politics is that if if you want to keep getting elected, you have to, you know, court the right wing press. Now, in response, if he had said that in response, you could say, well, if you, if you recognize it's bad, didn't, why didn't you do anything to regulate it when you were in power, when you had the chance to, right? So that could have been a riposte. But I, I think what he said is, is even worse. He's just so relaxed about it. Oh, yeah, of course. The reality of power in Britain is that you, you have to schmooze the editors of, 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 of The Sun and, and Rupert Murdoch's main employees. That's just politics. You know, fab. He doesn't seem to have, have any problem with it whatsoever. The problematic nature of this clip was picked up by a number of people on Twitter, including my colleague Dahlia Gabriel, who said this, I, as an elected official and getting fed talking points by the sun, one of the most malevolent entities in our media landscape, is not the cute little story you think it is. Aaron Bastani also responded. He said this, I think this podcast is doing a fantastic public service in exposing the uniparty and the absence of any meaningful difference between the two parties encapsulated by these two. A former chancellor mockingly saying the former Sun editor had been running the country for 20 years. Now, the reason I'm reading you those two tweets from from Dahlia and Aaron is because Ed Balls responded to both of them. They weren't the most thoughtful of replies. Um, So to Dahlia, he said this, I'm not sure Dahlia understood the story. And to Aaron, he said this, Oh, come on, Aaron. Don't be such a wally. Ash, what did you make of that clip? And what did you make of, I suppose, Ed Ball's very dismissive response to anyone who thought it might be somewhat problematic, what he said? I'm going to start with the the um, very condescending tweets of, I don't think Dahlia understood the story. And, oh, come on, Aaron. Don't be such a wally. And I know this is petty. And I know that this is small time. But something that really winds me up on Twitter is when these grandees and, you know, these custodians of sensible debate use your first name in such a way that it just it makes it clear how much they ooze disdain towards you. And when I read things like that, The thought that's going on in my head is don't you fucking dare use my government name ever again, you condescending prick. Um, And I realise that that's totally uh, petty and I realise that it perhaps speaks to me being easily riled, but it's something that's always bothered me. When it comes to the content of the clip, I mean, he is just saying I was a Labour Chancellor of the Exchequer. I was in Gordon Brown's government. and. I was fed a line or I was encouraged to take a line, which made it into the prime minister's speech by the editor of The Sun. And he tells it as a kind of cutesy insider story, as Dahlia points out. But what it actually represents is just how far the influence of the Murdoch media empire extended into what was meant to be a Labour government. Now, this shouldn't be brand new information to anyone who knows their political history. I mean, you think about those meetings between Tony Blair when he was leader of the opposition and Rupert Murdoch. You think about The Sun boasting it was The Sun what won it after the 97 election victory. Think about the complicity, the active coordination between David Blunkett as Home Secretary, the News of the World, and The Sun when it came to driving an anti-asylum seeker moral panic. And then you think about the way in which the Murdoch empire turned on Gordon Brown. When the 2010 election didn't result in an outright majority for the Conservative Party. They called Gordon Brown a squatter in number 10. Now, I would have thought that that would have prompted a moment of real political reflection for Ed Balls and George Osborne. I think what this 
demonstrates this little moment is that these little centrist dad podcasts, the reason why they're so smug is because they think that they've been restored to power and influence because the left was defeated along with Jeremy Corbyn. So they can say these things, relishing their insider status once again. What they don't realize is that, sure, Jeremy Corbyn was defeated, but that real suspicion of the establishment, a real dissatisfaction with the status quo is still here. So we can look at your chummy little podcast and think that you come across as totally unbearable establishment stooges when you're nip nip nipping within it. Very well put. And of course, if you want to support a media outlet that isn't just a former chancellor and a former shadow chancellor wanging on about how cute it was to have a meal with the editor of The Sun, um, you can go to tomorrowmedia.com slash support. We're currently um, running a fundraiser where we're trying to get 5,000 new supporters so we can put ourselves on a sustainable footing and keep growing. Um, if you are already a regular supporter, thank you so much. You make all of this possible. If not, please do go to tomorrowmedia.com forward slash support. The link is in the description. We really do appreciate it. Um, Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And look, I've been decorating this room differently because, you know, you kept slagging off my interior decor skills. So now we've got a dying plant and fairy lights. Yeah, I'd say five out of 10, but on the way up. <laughs> I'll take it. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. We'll be back tomorrow. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.